Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Dave Rogstad is off today. On today's podcast, a Trinitarian prayer for our consideration. Uh, Ken, we're getting very practical today as we take a look at a morning prayer from John Stott. Uh, maybe uh, as we begin here, you can remind us who John Stott is as we consider his uh, morning prayer. Yeah, John Stott was a major uh, evangelical Anglican theologian of the 20th century. Uh, his book, uh, Basic Christianity, is right up there with mere Christianity as one of the uh, most influential evangelical sources. And uh, so Stott was part of the Church of England, he, but he was kind of, I believe I, he would be low church and very solidly evangelical. A lot of his works are published with InterVarsity Press, and he has a, a great little morning prayer that I want to share with everybody, but the focus really is the importance of the Trinity and how we can make uh, our, our Trinitarianism a bigger part of our lives. So th mm -hmm. that's kind of the focus that I want to look at, a, a more practical look at the Trinity. Wonderful. Okay, let's get it going. Well, let me read uh, to you uh, Stott's prayer, and then I'll come back to various parts of it as we, we talk about uh, various ideas. Again, you could get this. Um, it is uh, from his book, Basic Christian, the Inside Story of John Stott, but it is available uh, on the web. So uh, it reads this way. It, again, is a prayer to, to the triune God. Stott says, good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray this day that I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Mm. Uh, I love that prayer, Joe. It's, uh, it is a prayer that uh, I've printed out, and uh, I have it both here on my desk at, at RTB, at Reasons to Believe, where I work. I also have it uh, at, in my home. And uh, I want to, so I want to talk a little bit about this, uh, about this prayer and about kind of how we bring our Trinitarianism more into our life. And I, I want to make kind of a controversial comment here, and I'll, I'll explain it as we go. But I sometimes wonder, Joe, if we don't live as kind of functional Unitarians. That is, we believe in the Trinity. We believe God is one what and three who's. We believe that God is triunity, so God is one in being or essence, but three in personhood, but it doesn't show much in our lives. 
we, we kind of uh, function as Unitarians. And I, I also want to raise the point that sometimes when you look at evangelicalism from a broad perspective, um, evangelicals seem to talk a lot about Jesus. Our Pentecostal charismatic friends, they talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. You might even say the Eastern Orthodox, they kind of have a special place for the Father. But where, where does the triune God come into to being? So those are some of the things that I want to share as we as maybe we think more about how our Trinitarianism can affect our, our, our daily living. Mm -hmm. What I like about this prayer, Joe, is I love it that Stott addresses all three persons. Now, of course, standard prayer, that is classical Christian prayer, is we pray to the Father and we pray in the name or the authority of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I like it when people use all three names of the persons within the Godhead. And that's what John Stott does. Uh, he even in a very conversational way, you know, just as I might say, as I come to work and see uh, Fuzz or, or Dave or you, Joe, you know, good morning. Uh, he speaks to the three persons within the Godhead. And I, I like that. I listen very carefully when people pray. I, I, I don't want to appear as a prayer Nazi, but I, I think a lot of times when we pray, we, we may pray generically, you know, oh Lord, or we may pray, oh God, or we may pray to Jesus. But uh, prayer in a classical sense is, again, to the Father, uh, through the Son, by the, the Holy Spirit. And I like the second part of Stott's prayer as well. He identifies Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of their, uh, their primary work. Uh, he says of the Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Well, the Father is the principal agent in creation. Of course, in Trinitarian theology, we like to bring the fact that when one member of the Trinity is involved in something, all of them are in one way or another. So within the New Testament, uh, while the Father is the principal agent of creation, Genesis 1-2, you have the Holy Spirit kind of hovering over creation, kind of sustaining it, if you will. And then in the New Testament, we're told that the Son upholds the creation. Uh, so Stott says, I worship you to the Father as creator and sustainer of the universe. Then he says, Jesus, Lord Jesus, I worship you as Savior and Lord of the world. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, he is the world's Savior. His life, death, and resurrection is uh, what brings us back into relationship uh, with God in a salvific sense. And then the Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. You're getting a little kind of uh, the systematic theology here. It's the Holy Spirit's role in our sanctification, our, our growth in holiness, our movement away from sinful attitudes uh, and, uh, and actions. And then Stott, of course, brings it back and he says, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and then there's another shift here. 
uh, Stott is really trying to bring the Trinity into our lives. He says, Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Then he says, Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. And so I love that daily. I love the reference of the three persons, the application of the day. And then, of course, uh, the Holy Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I, I like it that... Um, that Stott recognizes that it's the, it's the three members of the Trinity that are involved uh, completely in our relationship with God, that all of them are active. I mean, even in redemption, we don't often think of the Father in terms of redemption, but remember, it's the Father who sends his Son into the world. Mm -hmm. It's the Son who says, it's finished, it's accomplished, but it's the Spirit that comes on the church uh, and really applies. So how important is the Trinity? Well, uh, I think it's the very essence of Christianity. And Stott then closes, he says, holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God have mercy upon us. Uh, amen. Uh, I'd like to see more people think about these ideas the way Stott has presented this prayer, uh, because I think that uh, I think that Bruce Ware is probably correct. Um, uh, he says that Bruce Ware is a is an evangelical Protestant theologian. I think he's Baptist in orientation, um, but he mentions that uh, you know the the church is kind of out of touch with the Trinity. In fact, here's what Robert Latham says. Latham is a Presbyterian theologian, and his uh, Book Through Western Eyes, which is a, a reformed view of Eastern Orthodox tradition, Latham says this, the Trinity has been increasingly divorced from the life and worship of the Western church. For the overwhelming majority of Western Christians, it is hardly an exaggeration to say that it is considered more of a mathematical conundrum than a vital matter of everyday faith and worship and then uh, Latham says this, he says, a random sample of Western Christians ask what the Trinity means to them would invariably respond with blank stares. The hymnology of the Western church is sadly lacking in clearly Trinitarian compositions. And you know what, Joe? I've actually checked it. I looked at some of the, the hymnals, both in the Lutheran uh, Reformed uh, Anglican tradition, which are confessional, right? There is a confessional faith. There is a liturgy. You confess the creeds. You can you confess your sins to God. Uh, there, it's true. There aren't a lot of Trinitarian hymns. I mean, other than "Holy, Holy, Holy," I mean, how many Trinitarian hymns can you think of, uh, as opposed to hymns that focus on Jesus, right? Uh, it, it seems like the doctrine of the Trinity in some ways is kind of lost. And I don't like it that in the evangelical world, uh, we kind of act like functional Unitarians. Um, 
Now, why do I say that? I say that, Joe, because to me, the Trinity gives me great joy. Uh, I realize that God is a maximally perfect being. God is not only all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present, these omni-qualities, but I also know that God is maximally good. That John can say God is love, John 4, 8, John 4, 16. God is love because God is a trinity. And uh, as you know, Joe, I constantly bring this point because I, I think it is a very powerful way of, of presenting historic Christianity that the gods of even the other monotheistic, the Middle Eastern, the Abrahamic religions of Judaism and Islam, um, there's no diversity. And so who did these gods love in eternity? You know, I'm borrowing that from St. Augustine, uh, who wrote more than 1600 years ago. But this is, I think, uh, something we, we work out. And I know for me, uh, this is my own personal experience, but I know one of the reasons I was attracted to the Anglican tradition is because the liturgy is filled with Trinitarian references. In fact, last Sunday, I uh, decided uh, I'm kind of an obsessive compulsive person when it comes to theology and particularly the Trinity. So I, I kept a running list of how many times in the Anglican liturgy uh, there was a reference to the Trinity. Uh, so it was either the word Trinity or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I counted 20 times. And, and I'm discounting anything from the sermons or the hymns. Um, so this, this was a very powerful thing uh, mm -hmm. that attracted me to this, to this tradition. And, and again, I don't like to... Um, I don't like to kind of single out one branch of Christendom and make it sound as if, you know, the others aren't uh, every bit as good. That's not my point. Uh, rather, rather, my point here is to say that um, I, I think that there is a, I think there's a, a, a great experience when the Trinity becomes, you know, a dynamic part of our, our life uh, as Christians. I think we should teach our children to pray this way. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think we should encourage members of our church to have a prayer life that is very Trinitarian. Yeah. Well, uh, I know you're going to talk some more about this, but um, when you read that, I, I looked here, and this is a, a short prayer, John yeah. Stott's uh, Trinitarian prayer. Uh, but I think it's a great way to start the day. I, I, I think I might, <laughs> I might start to doing this so I make sure I'm, I'm doing something right in the morning, you know, instead of uh, forgetting about God or tacking on something later. It's kind of a nice, deliberate, easy way to invite the triune God to, yeah. you know, right into your life and to, uh, and to bless you in, in these ways. I mean, just thinking about him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and what they have done on our behalf and to ask, you know, you, you got the fruit of the spirit there. Yeah. You know, that's from, uh, what is that again? Like Galatians, Galatians. Yeah. yeah five, a uh, lot of, a lot of great stuff there. So I'm recommending it to myself. If, if not, if nobody else for a morning prayer. 
Well, you know, uh, one of our colleagues here at Reasons to Believe, I sent this to Mark Perez, who is the new COO of RTB. And uh, he said, wow, I printed it out and I have it right here on my desk that I can, you know, I can pray it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I really enjoy the fact that uh, Stott is making the triune God personal and friendly, that we can, we can say good morning to the Lord. Um, and, and again, he draws us back to the, the work of the three members of the Trinity and then applies it in our daily life. I think that's, uh, I think that's very rich. Uh, it's something I, you know, I, I really enjoy. And I, I want to encourage people, um, you know, to think about their Trinitarianism, to, to think about God as a, as a triune being. I think sometimes, Joe, people feel intimidated. They, they know you need to believe it. You can't be an Orthodox Christian and not believe in the Trinity. You end up with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, right? Uh, but yet they feel kind of like, well, it's, it's complicated. It's difficult. I might say the wrong thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with praying to Jesus. Uh, I think we see it in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Stephen's prayer. I also think there's nothing wrong with praying to the Spirit. I do, particularly when I pray maybe for someone's conversion, or I pray uh, in the morning about uh, my need for growth. I will ask the Holy Spirit, you know, Spirit, uh, you know, produce your fruit in me. But a formal prayer is, again, to the Father and in the name of the Son. That's where we get our authority. That's why we can come to the Father, because we belong to the Son, and we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, uh, various cults and uh, false religions, of course, deny that. Joe, I've made the point, and I, I, I think it's still accurate, that all of the major cults, uh, if, if the term cult is a little funny for you, all of the religions that have arisen in America, uh, you know, the alternative religions, the Latter-day Saints, the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they all deny uh, two things. They deny uh, the Trinity and they deny salvation by grace. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think when you deny the Trinity, you lose sight of the grace of God. You, you lose sight of the love of God. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a Jehovah's Witness. I wouldn't want to be a Mormon. Uh, not that they don't have some good qualities, but I think that both systems are missing uh, something that's central to Christianity. And, and for me, the Trinity is closely connected to God's graciousness to us. It's his goodness. It's his love. Now, you might have differences with the Catholic Church as a Protestant, but Joe, you and I remember uh, growing up Catholic, put, putting our, our thumb and four fingers together, dipping it in the holy water, making the sign of the cross, touching your forehead, your chest, and then the cross. Uh, I think one thing that's very rich about the Catholic tradition is that everything begins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, we do that in the Anglican Church. I, I, I always liked that practice, and I like it that I can now return to it uh, in the Anglican Church. The Orthodox do it, but uh, 
you know, when Catholics do it in the name of the Father, Son, they go left and then right. The Orthodox go right and then left. And of course, if you put your thumb and your two fingers together, that's the three persons. And then the two fingers that are bent down, that's the deity and humanity of Christ. Mm. I love all that. I, <laughs> I love it that I can do theology with my hands. Right? There you go. <laughs> so these are, these are uh, I think, you know, very rich qualities. Now, um, let me, I, I shared this, I made this statement on, on Facebook. I said, one of the things that attracted me to the Anglican tradition is the Book of Common Prayer's deep liturgical focus on the Trinity, uh, being interested in and encouraged by God's triune nature. In this morning's service, I counted 20 explicit references to the Trinity in the liturgy, not counting formal hymns and sermon. Now I put that on my, my Facebook page and uh, one of my Facebook friends responded. Uh, she said this, she said, although I love this and agree with you, I would be more interested in references in the Bible that refer to the Trinity. Now, I, my impression I think is this, that there was a bit of a concern that you might have a liturgy and that it wouldn't reflect the Bible specifically. Um, and so I said to her, I said, you know, the great contemporary Christian theologian, J.I. Packer, who, by the way, was an evangelical Anglican. He knew John Stott. Uh, Packer said this. He said uh, he called the Book of Common Prayer, quote, the Bible arranged for worship. And I don't know about you, Joe, but I need help in prayer. I, I need a prayer book. I need something to help me touch all the things I need to, I, I need to work through. So I, I shared with my friend on Facebook, I said, you know, um, uh, what's, what's great is that in the Book of Common Prayer, all the major theological doctrines are addressed. And it's done in such a way that you can, you can recite them, you can confess them, you can profess them. And I think to some degree, there's kind of two types of Christian churches, if you will. There's the confessional church and the non-confessional church. And the backdrop of this, of course, is Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, this is the church's emphasis that the Christian, the classical Christian church, they're a confessing people. And we see this in the Catholic church. We see it in the Orthodox church. We see it largely in what I would call the magisterial Protestant churches. But I think churches can learn, uh, you know, from, from one another. And of course, another thing I shared is I don't think the Book of Common Prayer was ever intended to compete with the Bible. It was uh, simply a masterful way of drawing on Scripture and putting it in a doxological context. Uh, and what I mean by that is simply this, that our theology is to lead us to a act of worship. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, learning theology is fun and great, and I love all that. But it's to lead to a purpose where I say, oh, Lord, you are this great, maximally perfect being, and I love you, and I worship you. Uh, 
And I, you know, I think to myself, it, it, it has real practical import, Joe, in this kind of context. I mean, sometimes non-Christians will say, man, what kind of God do you have where you have to worship him? He sounds vain, you know, he, he seems consumed with himself. Well, my response is, well, think about God. God is infinitely perfect, just, holy, solely loving, good, righteous, uh, God has all of these omni qualities, and he's the very source of our being itself. So why wouldn't we worship him? And I come back to, Joe, that idea of love that, um, you know, the God I know, the God I worship, he loves me. And, you know, I, I really take it personally. I think that we need to apply our theology and you know, during the pandemic, it's come to all of our attention that a lot of people feel alone, aloneness, loneliness. Uh, well, the Trinity makes me happy. The, the Trinity tells me God is light. He is analogous to a family. And the good news is I'm part of that family. I'm not alone. I'm part of uh, the Lord's uh, loving, caring, gracious family. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I remember um, this is a, a common uh, theme of yours for people who have listened to the podcast. And if not, uh, you'll learn that, that you often bring to our attention the practical import of the Trinity. Uh, you brought to our attention uh, Michael Reeves' book a while back, yeah. Delighting in the Trinity. And I remember reading through that and saying, wow, I've been missing out. I mean, I've always believed in the Trinity, but there's there's a reason to delight in the triune God. And the, you brought that out for us in that book. And now here again today in this prayer and some other reflections. So it's, it's all great stuff. Well, you know, St. Augustine, um, he, he described the Trinity this way. He said, the father is the lover. And the son is the beloved. And the father has loved the son from eternity. That is, there was never a time when the son was not. The father is the eternal father because he has an eternal son. And so they have been in this loving relationship. And then Augustine describes the Holy Spirit as the product of that love between father and son. That it's, it, it is the love that they share. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's a very powerful idea. And I, of course, take it seriously apologetically. I mean, I've been talking with uh, people in other religions for about a 40-year period. Uh, I became very interested in Christianity in the late 1970s. And almost immediately, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would knock at my door. And I remember playing basketball with a very studied witness, and he just tied me in knots. And I, I remember he beat me on the court, and then he beat me up theologically, and I thought oh, I was licking my wounds. Yeah. And so I remember driving home from the park, I said, Lord, that's not going to happen again. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to be more prepared. And that kind of drove me to the area of apologetics that I initially was attracted to, and that is countercult apologetics. So I've been talking with witnesses, and of course, uh, as you know, you know the the dialogue between a Christian, a Trinitarian, and a and an Arian Jehovah's Witness. Arian meaning 
they have largely embraced the Arian heresy of the fourth century that uh, the father created the son. He didn't beget the son. When you beget something, it's equal to you. When you create, it is inferior to you. So the witnesses believe that Jehovah created the son and then through the son created all other things. So they deny the deity of Christ. They also deny the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, you know the way it goes, I would say, on my front porch, or uh, I remember when I worked at the Christian Research Institute, Robert Bowman and I, who was one of my colleagues there, uh, uh, Rob is a big uh, defender and has written books about the Trinity, but we talked to three leading theologians from the Watchtower, and it was pretty intense conversation. But, you know, the the dialogue that I often have with the witness is I say, well, the Bible teaches the Trinity, and they say, no, it doesn't. I say, yes, it does. And they say, no, it doesn't. And I say, yes, it does. We go to this verse and that verse and here and there. But, you know, a couple of years ago, Joe, I changed all that. Uh, Right in midstream, I was talking with a lady on Twitter, and I said, you know, I want to shift gears. I I said, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I said, you, you're not Trinitarian, you're Unitarian. So you believe Jehovah is one God, one person. I believe that God is one being three persons. So I believe in unity and diversity. I believe in triunity. But you, you have adopted a Unitarian view of God. And in large measure, you embrace kind of an Aryan perspective. So I said, in light of our differences, let me ask you this question. I said, in eternity, because Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jehovah is eternal and infinite, um, I said, in eternity, who did Jehovah love before he created angels and human beings? And I said, was he, was he alone? Was he lonely? Uh, did he look in the mirror? I said, did Jehovah have to create in order to fulfill himself? I said, now you believe that Jehovah is sovereign, but where, what would happen to his sovereignty if he had a need to create? Well, you know what, Joe? Only a couple times in my discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses have, have I ever seen them consciously blink, right? We're face to face. Most of the time, it's, we're talking past each other. This was one of the very few times where I thought that there was a shift in the conversation and the person happened to be a woman. She, she stopped and kind of said, wow, um, nobody's ever asked me that question. And, you know, she wanted to retain that Jehovah was not something less than sovereign, but she also didn't think that there was anyone for Jehovah to love, but she, she didn't want to say there's a lack, mm-hmm. but she didn't have an answer to that. So I then went on to say to her, I said, you know, you, you knock on houses, right? You knock on the door. Uh, by the way, I've been told that Jehovah's Witnesses, they have to log the time that they spend uh, mm-hmm. visiting various people's houses. Uh, so I said to them, when you go to the door, do you tell them Jehovah loves them? And I said, if I could, I ask you a personal question. I said, do you believe in your heart that Jehovah loves you? And, you know, uh, 
I, I often compare it, uh, you know, my, my father was a World War II veteran and um, I, I kind of would describe my relationship with my dad mostly as one of respect. But I, a, a few times in my life, I felt like my dad and I had this kind of candid forthright where we were kind of sharing our heart back and forth. Most of the time, my, you know, I would just worship the water my dad walked on. Um, but it was kind of like that. There was this moment where I, I, saw, I saw that this lady was, was kind of burying her soul. Now, by the way, not too long after that, she basically told me that I wasn't very intelligent and I was denying the word of God and she mm. buffed me. So it didn't last very long, no. <laughs> but I, I think that this issue does happen. And uh, I remember uh, I've shared this with uh, our audience as well. Hugh and I were talking with two Jewish fellows. Uh, one of them was a religious Jew. One was a secular Jew, but they had become interested in RTB. Uh, RTB is kind of science, faith, apologetic. And so uh, Hugh and I had a Zoom call with them, and they did most of the talking. They were very loquacious. They were very verbose. Uh, Hugh and I, being a little bit on the introverted side, we, we both kind of found it hard to get a word in edgewise. But after 90 minutes, we decided, well, you know, you leave something with us and we'll leave something with you to, to think about. So I simply said, you know, uh, I said, you you both come from traditional Judaism where God, Yahweh is thought to be one God, one person, a Unitarian view. I said, Hugh and I are Trinitarians. Uh, within the unity of God, there is a, a plurality of personhood. I said, who did Yahweh love in eternity before he created angels and human beings? And the miracle happened, Joe, they stopped talking for like a minute. Mm. <laughs> uh, and they, then came back and said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that question. I've never thought about that question. I don't really have an answer. You know, I then, then introduced this topic to a couple uh, Muslim apologists that I interacted with on the web, went through the same process. Uh, they initially kind of said, well, you know, you're, you're not a very smart theologian. You're, you're not very reflective as a philosopher. So they're kind of beating me up. They were kind of insulting me. So I'd spring it on them. I said, you look, you're, you know, Allah is a single solitary being, single solitary person. Who did Allah love in eternity? Both of them said, you know what? I, nobody's ever asked me that question. I've never considered it. I don't have an answer. Thank you for raising. They almost apologized for their kind of uh, rebuff of me in the beginning. So I said, you know what, that's okay. There are a lot of things about God I don't know. Um, I said, go back and talk to your imam. Well, one of them did, and I had a conversation with the imam. Now, the imam, I think, was more thoughtful. You could tell that he had uh, a greater theological acumen, education. And the imam said, well, uh, Allah has a latent attribute of love that couldn't be exercised until he created so I said, well, uh, I said, that's interesting, but I said, the Quran, one of the 99 names for God is that God is love. 
And I said, I'm not an expert on Arabic. I said, correct me if I'm wrong. But I said, I think the word is a self-giving love. It's not looking in the mirror. It's not narcissism. I said, if you have an attribute of love and you don't exercise it, then you're not loving. So, you know, he, he basically told me, well, uh, we take Allah's attributes from the Quran, not from Ken's samples. Hmm. It's kind of ended a little abruptly there. But Joe, I, I want to bring this back to very practical terms um, because I think that God is love because God is a trinity. And uh, I think that God is both love and loving. Uh, he is loving because he is a person. Uh, that is, God is personal. There are three uh, subsistences. There are three persons within the Godhead. And this has, I think, real application. Um, it, and, and I think it can transform your Christian life. It can make your Christian life richer and, mm. and deeper. Yeah. You know, one of the ways that it does that is one of the concerns a lot of Christians have is we want to be more like Christ. A wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, uh, this is one way to do that. Uh, understanding what God has done, loved us from all eternity, sent his son. His son did the work of atoning for our sins and uh, giving us his righteousness. And then the Holy Spirit applies all that and sanctifies us uh, the rest of our lives until we meet God again. So we have we have the three members of the Godhead all working to make us like Christ, if that's our, our desire. And I'm sure it is for uh, many Christians. Yeah, and I, I you know, if I could talk for a minute, uh, I remember Yaroslav Pelikan. Pelikan was a Lutheran theologian early in life, wrote a book, The Riddle of Roman Catholicism. Joe, I think one of the best critiques from a Protestant point of view of the Catholic Church was Pelikan's book that he wrote in 1960. But Pelikan later in life, of course, taught at Yale uh, as a historian of Christianity. He he became Eastern Orthodox, but he was talking with David Neff, who was a longtime editor of Christianity Today. And Pelican said to Neff, he said, you evangelicals, you talk too much about Jesus and you don't think enough about the Holy Trinity. Now, I think in terms of talking about Jesus, it's hard not to talk about Jesus. It's hard, it's hard not talk, to talk about this extraordinary life of his, uh, who he was. And, and after all, he's the one that introduces us to the Father and the Spirit. Uh, so it's hard not to be fascinated with Christ, to be, uh, you know, to him to be right at the heart of who we are as Christian. But I thought Pelican's point is an interesting one, that uh, when you think about Jesus, you need to think about the Trinity. Why? Because Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father. The Spirit-anointed Son of the Father. That's who he is. Well, if I could put it this way, you can't have Jesus without the Trinity. He, the, the Spirit anointed the Son to mm -hmm. come into the world. He's, 
he's especially anointed. You know, in the Old Testament, the Jews would anoint those who served God, the prophets, the priests, and the king. They were specially anointed to do the bidding of God, to do the work of God. So Jesus is the anointed one, a spirit-anointed son, but, but then he's the son. He's the son of the father. And that kind of Trinitarian kind of element. Now, I remember years ago, Joe, when I was a very new Christian, I don't know if I became a Christian or if I returned to my Christianity when I was very young. But I remember one of my friends took me to Calvary Chapel in the city of Costa Mesa, uh, city near the, uh, the coast here in Southern California. And Chuck Smith, who was a very influential uh, Christian pastor and teacher, he was part of the Jesus movement. Many of the young hippie kids uh, would come to the beach and, and uh, the beach areas and Smith would preach and teach. And by the time I got to Calvary Chapel in the late 70s, it was just a thriving church, uh, tens of thousands of people maybe 20,000 people attended throughout the week. And I remember walking into the church and going to the front of the church and they didn't have an altar, which didn't surprise me. Chuck Smith kind of came from a uh, Christian church background, um, you know, kind of non-liturgical uh, background, uh, uh, Pentecostal kind of basic orientation. But I remember there was a, an image of a dove at, at the center of the church. And I thought, whoa, this is kind of interesting to me. Well, um, again, as we think about these things, I, I think it's certainly the case that our Pentecostal charismatic friends, there's a, there's a special emphasis upon the spirit. And then maybe with evangelicals, a special emphasis upon Jesus. But classical Christianity is kind of a return to the Trinity. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to critique uh, as much as I'm trying to emphasize the idea that, um, uh, you know, appreciating God is appreciating the three persons. And, and for me, that's been a part of my journey in the faith of, of, trying to align myself uh, both in my church convictions, but also in my life. And, you know, one of the callings I think I have, uh, my personal calling, Joe, is to try to revive interest in the Trinity among Christians today, to, to try to instill within them how important this is. Uh, and, and to help them think about, you know, these various ideas. So um, the Trinity, give, I, I think about two things, Joe, when I think about the triune nature of God. I think about joy and I think about love. Mm. I have mm. a sense of, of joy. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit. Uh, let me introduce you to another theologian, Bruce Ware. I believe that Professor Ware is a Baptist theologian. Uh, has a lot of uh, very good books. He has a book entitled Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a great title for a book about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Uh, he talks about 10 things. I'm not going to mention all 10 of them, but there's a couple that I'd like to, to mention and talk a little bit about. Uh, he talks about 10 reasons to focus on the wonder of the Trinity. Number one, he says the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important distinguishing doctrines of the Christian faith and therefore is deserving of our careful study, passionate embrace, and thoughtful application. I, I like that, and I agree with that. Um, the Trinity distinguishes us from the other religions of the world, from the other sectarian groups. Um, and again, I think every sectarian sect or cult denies the Trinity and salvation by grace. Um, so the Trinity is unique. It, it, it's a distinguishing feature of, of historic Christianity. But I think we have to we have to carefully study it. We need to passionately embrace it. And then we need to apply it to our lives. I like what Ware says there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what uh, John Stott is doing for us here in this morning Trinitarian prayer. He's, he's making it practical. He's challenging us. Don't live as functional Unitarians. Live as Trinitarians, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I love that. Now, where says this, he says, more personally, I believe that many Christian people will one day stand before the Lord aware as never before that they spent too little time getting to know the depth and the wonder of who God really is, including his revelation of himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God overall. I mean, theology Theology is the queen of the sciences. Theology is the greatest discipline that there is. And I, I like to apply, again, I like to apply my theology to my life. I remember when I had a life-threatening illness, Joe, I, I, thinking was kind of tough with uh, abscess brain lesions, but I was, I, was, uh, I was trying to hold on the best I could and I remember trying to do some systematic theology, and I would say, look, if, if God is everywhere present, then he's right here with me. If God is all-knowing, then he knows what I need. He knows that I'm in a world of hurt right now. And if, and if God is all-powerful, then he's stronger than this uh, illness that I have. I was trying to take my theology and apply it to my my very weak uh, position that I was in. But I think that's what Ware and, and Stott are encouraging us to take our theology and to understand it, to work at it, to, to, to try to understand it the best we can, to comprehend it the best that we can, but then to, to rightly apply it. So I appreciate what Ware says there. Well, that's a great application on your part. I mean, here you are wrestling with, you know, your mortality and, uh, you know, you, you go to the Trinity and ask for God's help. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful encouragement for, the, for all of us, I think. Well, I, I remember one night my wife, uh, my wife went home. She was uh, tired and, you know, our whole family was turned upside down. But remember my wife left and I was uh, just laying there in bed alone. And, uh, you know, I thought, 
do I really believe all this? And I, so I went through my apologetic arguments as best I could. Again, my, I had drugs pumping in me and I had, uh, you know, uh, infection within my brain. So it made it very difficult. But I kind of came back to these basic principles. These, I thought about the creed. I thought about, you know, why I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. Well, here's a second point that Ware makes. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity is both central and necessary for the Christian faith to be what it is. Remove the Trinity and the whole Christian faith disintegrates. You know, that's my understanding of a heresy, Joe. A, a heresy is such a severe departure from historic Christianity that if you adopt it, Christianity becomes something completely different. If you take the Trinity out, um, and what are we left with? Unitarianism, where, you know, Gnosticism. If you embrace Gnosticism, Christianity becomes something very different. Arianism, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are no longer embracing historic Christianity. That's that's why that's why heresy is so dangerous. It it can it can shipwreck your faith, mm -hmm. right? Trinity is uh, so central. Here's a third Bruce Ware again. Um, he says. Worship of the true and living God consciously acknowledges the relationship and roles of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and again, I, I like to encourage Christians to get in the habit of uh, praying to the Trinity, acknowledging the Trinity. Uh, I remember when I was writing my book, Classic Christian Thinkers, I was reading about the nine uh, individual Christian scholars and Irenaeus, uh, an early church father, very important, battled the Gnostic heresy. Uh, Irenaeus came up with an analogy, Joe. Uh, he said that the uh, he said the, the Son and the Spirit are the Father's right and left hands. Now this is a, this is an analogy. Of course, God is is an infinite, eternal, tri-personal spiritual being. It's the son later, the second person of the Trinity that takes a human nature. So God doesn't have a body, but this is an analogy that Irenaeus is giving. And it's like the father, when, when the father works in the world, when the father wants to accomplish something, he uses his two hands, uh, the son uh, and the spirit. And I love that. I, I love it. Uh, one of the things I... One of the things I enjoy about studying World War II is I, I love it that the Allies worked together to accomplish this incredible victory over the Axis powers. And, you know, he had some uh, difficult associations, particularly when the Soviets became part of the Allied commitment with the Anglo-American forces in the West. But nonetheless, uh, you know, somebody like Victor Davis Hansen would say that the Allies won because of Russian blood, British know-how, and American productivity. I mean, the Russians lost maybe 25 million men. Um, well, the Allies were working together. Joe, I like to say, I've got these allies, and these mm -hmm. three persons are working 
for my benefit. They are involved in my life. I'm, I'm adopted into that family. Um, and that's important to me. Um, you know, there are times in your life, particularly when you go through suffering, where you need to know God is there and that God loves you. Uh, I think of Romans chapter eight, um, where Paul says, uh, you know, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord, that God's working everything for our benefit. You know, these are very important promises. And so when Ware talks about, you know, the role of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, I, I think we can bring that into our, our prayer life. Mm -hmm. Here's number four, where says the Christian's life of prayer must rightly acknowledge the roles of the Father, Son, and Spirit as we pray to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Um, again, that's, that's, that's a model for our prayer, to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Uh, where says, so prayer rightly understood, Christian prayer, is prayer to the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit. To pray aright, we need a deep appreciation for the doctrine of the Trinity. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I will meet Christian people and they are not sure that the Holy Spirit is a person. Mm -hmm. They may think of the Spirit as a force rather than as a dynamic you know, person in that kind of context, or, or I'll listen to people pray, and they'll pray to Jesus, or they'll pray to the Father, and then they'll say, Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Well, the Father didn't die on the cross. Mm. That was the Son. Mm. So you want to bring your theological application here. Here's number five, and again, he has 10, but I'm only going to address five. Where says the Christian growth in Christ-likeness or sanctification is rightly understood and enriched when seen as the work of the triune God. And he mentions that the Father ordains us to life of holiness in Ephesians 1.4, that the Son lives our moral example and dies as our Savior, Ephesians 1.7-10, and then the Spirit superintends our lifelong process of conformity to Christ's likeness, 2 Corinthians 4.6. So there is, uh, Joe, a, a, a lot to be applied. There is a, a lot to celebrate. Uh, Michael Reeves says there's a lot to delight mm -hmm. uh, in the Trinity. And I, I hope that our discussion here will, hope, will help people to see that the Trinity isn't just a conundrum. It isn't just something very hard to comprehend, that it, it is... It's the very way God is. And mm. our interaction with him is through that one God that's in three persons. Yeah. Uh, Ken, quick question as we wrap it up here for people who uh, love what they've been hearing, uh, but nonetheless, uh, their pattern might be one of they get up or throughout the day, they're just thinking, Lord, help me with this or that. It's just... Lord, or maybe Father, uh, is there any uh, problem in that? Do, do we need to start uh, separating out the persons of the Trinity? Or how can we start praying more deliberately to the Trinity this way? 
Yeah, I, I certainly don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, and another pattern we find in the New Testament is the Father is referred to as God, the Son as Lord, and then the Spirit. So you could have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or you could have God, Lord, and Spirit. Mm. And of course, Lord, Kurios, would be the equivalent of the Old Testament Yahweh. So we uh, you know, there are times where I just say, oh, Lord, or good Lord, you know, help me, uh, strengthen me. Um, I, I don't in any way want to discourage people from a heartfelt prayer. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think it can enrich their life as they begin to think about their Trinitarian elements, how unique it is, um, how, you know, we can apply it. Uh, to our lives. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to encourage people to, to pray a prayer like John Stott's and to get into the habit of praying in the name of the Father and the, the power, authority of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. But I, but I don't want to, I don't want to come off as if the Lord will not be anything but gracious when we call upon him. Very good. Well, those are helpful thoughts and insights. To Ken, I know I've benefited just from listening. And I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I think I'm going to try to adopt uh, John Stott's prayer. At least, at least it's a good way to start the day, right? Sure is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I like it. All right. Well, let us know your comments and questions. Uh, you can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. Don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. Be sure and check out Ken's blog as well. He mentioned some of the interactions uh, you've had, Ken, with um, uh, people who are of other world religions. You take up those topics, those challenges on your blog, Reflections by Ken.wordpress.com. That comes out uh, every other week. So avail yourself of those as well. All right, that's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.